Welcome to the New Books Network. Hello, this is Lily Gorin with the New Books Network, the New Books in Political Science podcast. To join, today, I am joined by two of my friends and colleagues, um, Heather Lavka and Samina Mula, um, who are authors of the new book, Bodies in Evidence, Race, Gender, and Science in Sexual Assault Adjudication. This was published in 2021 by New York University Press. It is a beautifully written book, um, and it is a very interesting and important study in how we understand what happens at trials um, in courtrooms uh, and how all of those pieces come together to often um, reify racial and gender conceptions. But I am going to let Samina and Heather talk to us about that. I'd like to welcome Heather and Samina to the New Books and Political Science podcast and ask them each to tell us a little bit about themselves and how they came to this collaborative project. Thank you for having us, Lily. Um, it's it's true, we are friends, but it's nice to talk about our work. And um, this is Samina, and I'm an anthropologist. And I'm currently in the Women's Studies Department, um, Women, Gender, and Sexuality Studies Department at Emory University. But until last summer, I was on the faculty at Marquette University with Heather in the Department of Social and Cultural Sciences, which is where our anthropologists and our sociologists are housed at Marquette University. Uh, So in a kind of biographical way, Heather and I um, met and developed a potential collaboration uh, because we were in the same department, but also because we had read each other's work um, after joining the department. And we have very overlapping interests, even though we come from different fields. We're both qualitative researchers. We uh, are both very active in the law and society world. Um, And so that's a conference that we go to. And some of our closest friends are political scientists. Um, But we came to the study of a courtroom ethnography in part because of the previous work we had done. Um, And I'll talk a little bit about what my earlier work was. And I'll let Heather uh, add her her particular approach, because we do come from different um, places and approaches. And so as an anthropologist in which we like heavily uh, rely on ethnographic methodology or field work uh, to do the kind of research that we do, I have always had an interest on the intersections between medicine and law. So the first book that I wrote, uh, which was based on my dissertation research was on um, medical legal intervention. into uh, sexual assault. What does that mean? Emergency room sexual assault interventions. And so I spent four years in Baltimore watching people collect um, evidence uh, by people, I mean, mostly forensic nurses collecting evidence, working with sexual assault survivors. And um, at the time I was very, very interested in some of the clinical implications of citing that work uh, there. And after I completed that project, I began to really wonder uh, what happened to that forensic evidence. Um, And Heather has also uh, done work on sexual assault forensic intervention, but from a very different angle. So I will let her uh, speak to her own uh, research entry. 
Hi, thank you. Um, this is Heather. And yes, as Samina said, um, I am a sociologist. I am in the Department of Social and Cultural Sciences at Marquette University in Milwaukee, Wisconsin. Um, and that is where Samina and I met, of course. Um, and we're discussing our previous work uh, together and you know, going on this um, tenure track journey together in the department, um, how we were going to do this, what we were publishing, you know, what were some next steps for our um, maybe collaborative work together. And we started developing this project. Um, my work previously, as Samita mentioned, was really in um, some of the evidentiary work on sexual assault intervention, particularly on discourse and language. So uh, a lot of my work was really focused on how do young people, how do children talk about their experiences of sexual violence? And that was um, using disclosures um, at a community organization that would do forensic interviewing of children. So I really focused a lot on um, the, the disclosures, the language, the, the talk that was used. And of course that was used in court sometimes, that was used as evidence. So really in a, in a very similar way as Samina, um, thinking about where did that evidence land later, right? Like what was the next path? Um, and we started talking about our interests and in collaborating on this project. So I am a qualitative researcher in sociology, and a lot of my training was on discourse analysis, narrative analysis, doing interviewing um, uh, and group facilitation, as well as some ethnographic work. So I'm not as especially trained as uh, Samina in anthropology because in, in sociology, we have multiple methods. So it was really wonderful to get together and talk about how we we're going to do this multi-method intervention and analysis, um, how to really plan out the methodology of, of bodies and evidence, and what kind of different, um, you know, approaches that we could take together. And that is where I'd like to ask my next question, because this is a long time of study that the two of you not only worked on, but you integrated your students um, from Marquette University into, that you were sitting in courtrooms, you were sitting in jury selection, you were interacting with court officials. Um, can you explain a little bit about how you built essentially the, the research process for this really detailed um, ethnographic study of understanding how race and gender come into and are essentially reinscribed in so many ways in the court setting? So I think a lot of uh, scholars start in the first place, which is with literature review. And because we both had so much uh, experience understanding what sexual assault intervention looks like with adults and children, and I should distinguish that the programs that I worked with in Baltimore um, worked with people who were 13 years of age and higher. Um, 
people I would consider children. Uh, but in terms of the forensic universe, that's how it's split up um, oftentimes. And Heather worked with people who were, um, we have some overlap, but she worked with much younger people than I did. And so we saw our own research as very complementary. Uh, in terms of what actually gets adjudicated in Milwaukee. And we had so many questions about what happens with evidence in part because what the literature tells us from our good colleagues who do the quantitative analysis is that the inclusion of forensic evidence has not really shifted the outcomes um, of sexual assault prosecutions um, with there's one exception, um, which we still don't really understand whether there's a causal relationship there. Um, and that's Michigan in the United States um, until recently. Um, that's essentially where the literature has landed. And so being um, the type of researchers that we are, we had a lot of questions about how forensic evidence and forensic expertise, uh, which we all seem to invest so much in, uh, as a society, but also literally right in terms of the political economy of sexual assault intervention, the state really invests heavily um, in these forms of intervention. Our, we began with this question of how has the process shifted? And in order to understand the process, um, you know, we turned to an ethnography of the court in part because a lot of research um, in law and society, especially that's concerned with legal norms um, and you know, what we consider the life of the law um, and it's every day is really based in textual analysis and textual analysis in legal studies uh, really focuses on you know, what makes it into written opinions, which is typically when we're setting new precedents. So you're working at the appellate level but if you care about the everyday, then that doesn't tend to appear within the judicial record in the same way. Um, so there was a really compelling methodological reason to be present in court. The other thing that we know is that any moment that you're engaging with the criminal justice system in the US, you will be seeing um, inordinately the prosecution of people of color. And in Milwaukee, that means particularly black men are very much overrepresented um, in the population that turns up in court. And we know that because we know that there are some disparities um, as far as we know, in terms of how frequent sexual violence is um, in, in different communities, but, it, but they're, they're not adequately represented in the courts, right? So we don't see um, that same uh, kind of racial richness uh, that we know is actually out there when we're doing, you know, again, looking at quantitative data that tells us what rates of sexual violence actually are. And we also know that you can get court records of, um, you know, precedent conforming trials, um, but it's going to leave out all that off the record talk, which can be really rich. And when you're studying things like race and gender, we also know that judges are very much acculturated, um, you know, as our attorneys, not to say uh, racially offensive things. So you can't, for example, um, find that coded language as easily 
um, as you can um, when you're present and you can you can see a facial expression, you can pick up on a tone, you can notice a pattern of repetition, um, you can spend the entire day in a courtroom, you can hear the off the record talk so you know, you know a great deal more about how uh, particular uh, personnel orient to questions of race. So for those reasons, we chose um, ethnography. And I will pick up there and add in um, a little backdrop to, to that wonderful um, description of, of you know, why we're supposed to do the work that we did this way. Um, I don't know if you remember, Samina, but <laughs> we had we were uh, tasked with um, bringing in a speaker for one of our lecture series. And this was many, many, I hate to say perhaps a decade ago. Um, Sarah Buell. And Sarah Buell um, did a lot of work with court watch programs. And actually, I have a history um, working with a, the court watch program in uh, Minneapolis, Minnesota, which is a really well-established, really wonderful program. And talking about this with Sarah and um, sharing those experiences, it was fabulous for her to be with us and and say you know wait a minute like milwaukee doesn't have this right one of the largest jurisdictions in the united states um and milwaukee doesn't have an official court watch program so samina and i in our um maybe naivete um but but also hopefulness we're like hey we're gonna start this let's do this together we're just gonna take this on and that kind of started us thinking um through a pilot you know, program, and we gathered our a lot of our undergraduate research, um, well, research assistants, but also undergraduates in our classrooms, and really used that as a entry for them, you know, into watching court, into understanding about what was actually happening in the space. You know, it's not like TV. It's not like law and order. So that was eye-opening for students, which was wonderful, but it also really allowed us the space to more fully understand um, what was going on in this in this process. Um, how do you, you know, track cases through the court, the CCAP, which is the, the online court system? Um, how, what kind of information is there? Um, what is the, the ebb and flow of the daily practices of, of Milwaukee County Courts? And so we did this for many years and um, talking about it and teaching our students about methodology. I teach research methods in the, my department. Um, having students actually have this experiential learning about ethnography and interviewing and tracking cases and quantitative and qualitative, you know, analyses. Um, that was a lot of work for us. <laughs> you know, a lot of uh, uh, technical work, a lot of tracking. And, um, you know, we, we thought this is just a wonderful pilot study. And then we were able to kind of develop that on the ground um, evidence combined with the literature and develop a grant. And so we ended up getting the National Science Foundation grant to, um, you know, from the pilot study, really showing like what we could do and, and our reasons for wanting to be in that courtroom space through ethnography. And um, that was, you know, years and years of really, you know, talking with gatekeepers in the system and um, being there, you know, we've had a lot of 
um, scholars say, well, you know, you can just go into that space. Like it's a public space. You can watch whatever you want to at any time. And we, you know, certainly said, of course, but we did want, you know, the chief judge on board with what we were doing. We did want the courtroom actors and players to know here we are, right? We're, we're sitting here. We're going to have our students come in and out, you know, please know that they're here and we're here and we're going to just be hanging out and watching. And that's what we do with ethnography. Um, and then we were really wonderfully able to um, get some really good research assistance on board through that process. Uh, get some more money through the National Science Foundation to support them. And um, we had about, I'd say, five or six really dedicated um, undergraduate research assistants, one in particular, Amber Joy Powell, who uh, was our McNair scholar as well, and was, you know, with us through most of this project, who were able to take notes and, and be in places that we weren't able to. We were able to talk about um, and reflect on this process together. Um, and that was really, you know, something Samina and I designed as a, a feminist ethic of care um, to really think deeply about how we were going to involve students, um, teach and learn from them as well about this process and, and make sure everyone was taken care of as best we could to really do that reflection work together as a group. Um, and, you know, we really took great pains, I think, to, to, to really make sure that, that that was happening. And it's one of the things that I found particularly important as I was reading through your book, how you explain your own experiences and the experiences of the students um, that and, and how you think about yourselves in these spaces and how you are presented in these spaces and how people are responding to you um, based on your gender and your race and so forth and your age or ableism um, in these spaces. And so I, I found that really interesting in part because one or the the main thrust of the research is also like how are people who are in this situation as a um, a witness a victim witness or a defendant how are they being perceived and how is their essentially the narrative about them um, understood within this legal system. Um, and I'd love for you to sort of talk a little bit, unpack these intersectional components of what you kept seeing um, in terms of the reinscribing or the inscribing of authority, which is really what I found to be um, fascinating and disconcerting in terms of the research itself. So I guess um, maybe I'm a, maybe I should have led with this. With the, what the book actually argues <laughs> um, is that um, these everyday practices of adjudicating sexual assault um, you know, may not deliver what uh, people who are participating in adjudication recognize as justice, but as a uh, as an authoritative institutional site, right, that wields, again, a lot of um, expertise and, and resources to address the problem of sexual violence, it certainly is doing something, right, in, in terms of, of sustaining and reproducing particular narratives and, and norms, right? Um, and 
what we see the, uh, the product of the courts being, again, whether or not these are aligning with anyone's ideas of justice, are um, very clear hierarchies of, of race and gender, right? In which there's like a distinctive uh, notion in which uh, the crime of sexual violence itself is one that, you know, there's a lot of emotional sensitivity and intensity around, it's challenging. We see that actually as the way in, right? Because people's feelings are running um, as they should, right? So powerfully high, it affords, you know, the, the court this opportunity to reinscribe, to re-speak, right? Into legal records, the notion of um, where, uh, this crime comes from, right? And where this crime doesn't come from. And so it's not that there were no white adjudicants in the court, but there's a very clear sense in which white men who are being prosecuted for sexual assault are never blamed uh, for, for their whiteness, right? Like whiteness, white masculinity is never the driving factor. Whereas when we see black men prosecuted in the courts, uh, there's always this callback again through very coded layers of speech about, you know, this community or that community or side conversations about um, lapses in, in the African-American uh, community, um, the ongoing specter of the Moynihan report, right, where which keeps coming up again and again in, in, um, in these forms of discourse uh, where it really is clear that blackness is seen as the problem. And we understand that there's a critical tradition of looking at the judicial system from this perspective, that it is deeply prejudiced against um, defendants and particularly black defendants, but people of color uh, uh, generally. But what is really interesting about the crime of sexual assault, um, I guess interesting is a word that only a researcher would use in this context. Um, What's striking about it is that Clearly, most of the time we're looking at um, patterns of harm that are perpetrated within communities, within neighborhoods, within families. So if you're talking about a white defendant, you're typically talking about a white victim witness or white survivor, right, who may be his relative. This is also true in, in every sing, almost every single case uh, that we take a look at. So when the court offers its theories about what's wrong with the Black community or what's recoverable about a white defendant, we actually see that as extending to encompass the world of the victim witness as well. And the typical pattern really was of these cisgender kind of masculine defendants and cisgender feminine uh, victim witnesses. So what we also began to hear were two very different forms of sort of racist discourse um, that are very distinctive when we talk about black men and black women, right? Everybody gets criminalized, but the victim witness is accused of being a sex worker, right? There's always this defense narrative of this was transactional sex. So again, when you step back and you think about, regardless of the outcome, what the, what the, the product, right? Or what forms of discourse uh, are flowing out of this authoritative space and, um, and 
really shaping the lives um, of the adjudicants in the court. It's, you know, unfolding in front of a public gallery, everyone's hearing it. And this, of course, is the same logic that's going to be used in the next case and the next case and the next case. This is going to form the uh, the foundation of the sentencing argument too. So this, you know, sometimes we're talking about imprisoning people. Then you very clearly begin to see how um, how racial hierarchy, right, is being reproduced through these very gendered forms and gendered narratives. Um, I might add, you know, this is at the heart of I think the title, right, bodies and evidence, because you're really seeing how bodies are literally read on the stand, um, read by other bodies, right? Um, so when we talk about the, you know, how bodies are read racially, uh, class comes into that a lot. Um, our bodies as researchers were also read in that space. And we talk, we've written about that. We talk about that a little bit because we did have a, um, you know, intersectional, um, diverse group of us um, and all of our, you know, including our research assistants and all of our bodies were read in particular ways. And that allowed us to reflect on the space in different ways as well, um, personally, you know, and deeply, but also to think about then truly how uh, survivors, victim witnesses were being read and subjugated into these kind of um, narratives that were being produced. Um, so I'm a white woman. Um, we had a, a number of, you know, black uh, research assistant, black women as well. And, and we were all read very differently. You know, oftentimes um, Amber as a black woman was read as uh, a girlfriend of a defendant, perhaps, um, probably a family member, uh, even though that she was sitting there and taking notes, you know, in court. Um, and then, of course, she was read as a student. Oftentimes, Samina and I both got things like social worker or, um, you know, sometimes, you know, but, but part, on the, part of the court system. And so in that way, methodologically, we actually got to pick up and, um, experience different types of data, right? So I wouldn't be able to experience what Amber experienced, nor what Samina experienced, because of the way our bodies are actually being read by others. And the type of information that you could come across is actually very different analytically, right? Um, so there was a moment, I'm recalling that Samina and I were sitting in the hallway um, to, with a one of the prosecutors and a couple of police officers from Milwaukee. And there were numerous comments made, uh, racial comments made about, you know, how they police black bodies on the east side to make sure that the white patrons weren't scared or worried about um, people walking among them. <laughs> and, you know, I don't think that, and although there were looks between us and um, I don't think that, that they necessarily would have said that in the same way um, if Amber was sitting there. 
maybe they would have, right? But we were able to pick up on, on these different things as well. And we also focus, I will add, you know, the intersectionality of, of uh, race and age. We are also focused on um, young people. So you did have children who were sitting there testifying in open court in an open public gallery, um, children as young as six. And they were read through their bodies and their developmental processes. And you would see very distinctly a different developmental process given to white children versus children of color. And that became really evident as you as they were reading through um, how um, they were going to place them into communities, how children were placed within that within their family with and, and inscribed the you know, the, the narratives, the racist, sexist <laughs> narratives that were ascribed to their families. So that, that goes right back onto that survivors, you know, standing uh, on the stand, testifying on the stand, even if they're six years old, seven years old, um, uh, 11 years old, they were being um, read, their bodies were being read, and they were being given all the narratives that were ascribed to the perpetrator, right? Um, because, as Samina said, these are intimate networks. These are oftentimes sexual violence is happening between intimates, between friends and family members. And so you have, you have this enormous wealth of information of, of the way that people are being read and understood in in the sort of um, adjudicatory zone. Um, but then you also, one of the fascinating components of your, the research is you introduce the scientific um, sort of evidence um, that so many of us are familiar with from fictional representations. Um, as my husband often talks about the um, powder that, that CIS, CSI people use or whatever. Um, and I know this is sort of threaded throughout your book because you're also sort of pushing against everybody's conceptualization of what this evidence, you know, can do uh, because we're so used to seeing it in the fictionalized realm. And how, how does this interaction between our understanding of race and gender um, sort of come into into conversation with the forensic evidence and what does that do with regard to sort of forming more sort of structural opinions again? That's a great question, Lily. Um, and you know, this is the point that we wanted to make is that one of the things that's changed about the process of sexual assault adjudication right? The racism might be, you know, very actually deep um, and historically continuous, but we now have, because of all these public investments, access to uh, forensic intervention and the evidence that it creates. So what happens when that evidence comes into the court? Well, we structured the book um, around the conceit of the way a typical court case actually unfolds. So it begins with jury selection. So what you hear during jury selection is not just uh, 
you know, the sort of typical questions about whether a person will be able to judge fairly, but you actually start to hear attorneys um, use that opportunity to begin to train jurors uh, or to, you know, maybe attenuate jurors to whether there's going to be any forensic evidence or not. And in the majority of the cases that we watched, there was no forensic evidence. And so the struggle for the prosecutor often is convincing the jury that written testimony, uh, or sorry, that oral testimony is evidence, right? Which is, of course, what the law um, says. But you have to educate the jurors into um, into making their decision based on this testimony. And this oftentimes involves explaining why there is more often than not no forensic evidence. And the most common reason behind this is that um, many, many people, and this is very normal, um, do not report uh, sexual assault in its immediate aftermath. So if you are five days or seven days out, the window of opportunity for collecting any forensic evidence has closed oftentimes. Um, and so, especially when we're talking about like young children, it may take weeks or months or sometimes years for people to come forward. It's not, not also that unusual for adult um, victim survivors to also delay their reports, right? So all of this kind of information is being conveyed through the jury selection or voir dire process. Um, and it's sort of attenuating the jurors to what may or may not come. Now, when there is uh, evidence collected, oftentimes uh, it boils down to DNA evidence and um, finding DNA might resolve the question of whether a person was present, but we don't really then have definitive insight into whether we're talking about uh, a uh, consensual sexual encounter or a non-consensual one. That question still has to be resolved via testimony, right? So there are challenges there. But uh, the, the prosecution would oftentimes tell us that they were very excited when there was DNA evidence, right? Because it takes on a form of corroborating testimony, right? Um, and uh, equally, the defense oftentimes would try to exploit the absence of evidence, even though both parties understand how forensics works or what its limitations are because we're in this ad adversarial uh, process, um, they're going to try to, to, to advocate for you know, the state on the part of the prosecutor and for their clients on the part of the defense attorney, right? So, and, and I bring that up because again, you, know, you pose the question about structure. And so part of what we're dealing with is the structure of, of the adversarial justice um, adjudicative process in the criminal justice system. And then, um, you know, we use the term medical legal a lot um, in our book. Um, we are really, really interested by the aura of authority, we call it, which, um, you know, we take from sociolegal studies that kind of comes with forensic evidence, um, particularly for forensic evidence that is collected largely by nursing um, uh, personnel and sometimes by doctors, right? That they they carry with them a certain um, status um, as uh, health professionals, um, and so that comes into the court. Um, and uh, most often, 
forensic nurses, when they were called to testify, were testifying about why there was no evidence collected. That was their, largely the form of expertise that we heard. And then when it gets down to um, the interpretation of DNA evidence, that is where we really start to see people tap into some, you know, rather problematic ways that the public interprets genetic evidence uh, having to do with race and the probability that the DNA that we found belongs to the person who's being prosecuted, uh, the defendant. And, you know, I don't want to bore folks, but um, there's there's a kind of statistical shorthand that unfolds in which um, really anytime you are uh, identifying DNA, you're doing it against uh, a, a, not an unlimited pool of DNA, right? And I do think that the, the public often imagines that, you know, the DNA is all out there and we can match it perfectly. But really what we're talking about is DNA that's made available to the state largely uh, because of criminal justice prosecution, Right. So there's already a limitation on who's in those databases, although side note, and, you know, this is not the work that Heather and I do, but we're very aware of it. Um, when you give your DNA to Ancestry.com or 24andMe, uh, 23andMe and all of these other uh, proprietary private businesses, please be on alert that many of them do have um they do have deals with uh, states on a on a state by state basis uh, to allow you, those databases to be searched as well, right? So, so we're we're starting to see different influxes of DNA. But when they present the probability, they use these really large numbers, which tend not to make sense to the people who are listening to them. And then they give you race-specific uh, statistics about like how common a particular DNA profile is in, in say, quote unquote, the African-American population. Okay. We can't know that again, because all we have are these really limited samples um, of these databases. But what we're doing there and the way we think jurors actually take this on is I think that they come to think that race is in the genes, right? And those of us who, who work on the biocultural side and are very attentive to the kind of politics of um, genetic determinism and who understand that you cannot tell a person's race from their genes, understand that there are many steps that are being skipped during this process. But what it does is it reinforces the idea that, you know, this DNA belongs to this person. And then it reinforces some pretty problematic understandings we have about how the biology of race does not actually work. It reinforces the idea that, that race is, uh, biologically determined. Um, and, um, you know, very quickly, I'll get back to this question of the, the medical legal, why we talk about that. Like, so one is there's a way that law intersects with medicine often, right? Medicine becomes the site of the introduction of, or the collection of evidence. But I think one of the assumptions when we, when we think about um, legal and medical institutions often is that, you know, it's the law that introduces all of the, all of the violence, all of the negative um, experiences of, um, of, of people who are going through these processes. But we also want to make it really clear that what's happening in the courts has to do with this particular intersection of medicine and law, in which medicine also can be weaponized uh, in, in ways that 
um, disadvantage um, vulnerable people, right? That that it can be weaponized against um, people of color and has been, right? And it and medicine also brings its its own histories and limitations uh, to the law. So we don't want to paint this picture that the way forensic science enters the courtroom is that forensic science is somehow pure and is being contaminated by the law. You know, there is no science outside of the law, um, as our colleague um, who works on forensic science and rape litigation in India, Pratiksha Bhaksi, tells us, right? Um, So you see that term a lot in the book, um, in part because that is the form of expertise that I think we really want to question. And then I think, you know, to add on to what does this do for the process? What does this, what do we see because of everything that Samina just wonderfully described, right? Is, you know, we see this narrative of who is a good victim and who is a bad victim. And we talk about this in the book, um, or you could say the perfect victim narrative, right? Which many scholars have have investigated um, in sociolegal studies and, and in rape trials. And this is historically, you know, a a patriarchal and I would say anti-woman because there is this idea that a woman's voice and testimony must always be corroborated. And that is a very long historical, you know, story of not believing what women and children say. And so we would think that then, you know, oftentimes that all this evidence, all this DNA evidence that we have at our disposal now comes in and gives us the answer. And it is absolutely not the case, right? Um, because we could have DNA, you could have, and which is, as you know, said, it's very rare. Um, but even when you do have it, it's going to be always about consent. And it is even... Uh, the the uh, defense attorneys coming up with defenses for children. When you find DNA evidence on children, you know you would think, well, that's that's obvious then, right? Like that they can't consent. Children can't consent. But then you see these um, outlandish defense narratives of um, well, there's the floating DNA, right? DNA is floating around in the room, and they share space together because they're family members. And then, you know, clothing items get mixed up in the laundry. And, uh, you know, it's very, you know, long, detailed, you know, interesting defense, but it's always there. It's always going to be try, you know, explained away in some way. Um, Our friend and colleague, Rose Corgan, also calls this the trial by ordeal. And what we see with that is um, how the how much you can believe a victim witness on the stand, mostly women and children, is how much they put their bodies and themselves through, how much intervention in by the state did they go through, lifts them up to a perfect narrative, a perfect victim narrative, right? So if they were good victims, they um, went to the police right away and, and reported, right? If they were good victims, they um, then went and got that forensic uh, intervention and that medical procedure done, right? So 
if they were good victims, they they are willing participants of this uh, adjudication process of the, and they are good with the prosecutors. And you know, we even heard prosecutors say, you know, I was so pleased. They want victims to cry on the stand, right? If you were a good victim, you are damaged and hurt, and um, will cry and. All of that fits into a very stereotypical, obviously, um, portrait of what the public believes a survivor of sexual assault looks like and experiences. And what we talk about is um, joining the the all the wonderful scholarly work for for decades and decades and decades that have shown that no survivors don't act that way right and especially when they take the stand because they are trying to put on this aura of of um strength really right strength in front of the gallery strength in front of the defendant that you know i can do this i can talk about this and um Oftentimes the defense will use that to say, well, look, they don't really seem very upset by this, right? It couldn't have been that bad what they went through because they seem just fine. They're just surviving just fine. And, and this is how we see actual evidence start to um, you know, map onto those historical uh, narratives and cultural narratives about about rape. And I will add one other piece of evidence is um, it was always very, very interesting to find evidentiary pieces enter into the courtroom um, through technology. So social media, Facebook posts, um, text messages, um, you know, the public, the the jurors often thought that, well, if, you know, they were driving their car, surely some camera on the road must have picked up their, their movements, right? So we have this idea that surveillance is everywhere all the time. But, but not only that, and that may be the case, unfortunately, <laughs> but that we have access to that, right? So we're also in a system that is highly under-resourced. And most of the prosecutors and defense attorneys always said they didn't have access to that, right? Like that, that takes money and time and resources. Um, one of my favorite uh, memories from collecting evidence really is one of the prosecutors often started jury selection by, you know, painting a hypothetical situation saying, well, you know, so I came in this morning and I drove, um, my husband drove us into Milwaukee. First, we dropped off our children and then he dropped me off at work and then he went to work. And then I came in and I had my coffee and that, you know, kind of goes through the whole morning. And I said, would anyone on the, on the jury panel um, need more evidence to believe me when I, of the things I just said, right? And it was absolutely fascinating that many jurors would raise their hand and say yes. Um, and say, and then she would often say, well, what would you need for me to, to convince you that that was my morning routine, right? And jurors might come up with, well, I think like if you drove on 94, there was probably some surveillance camera that probably picked up your car or, you know, um, maybe I want to make sure that that's actually your last name and I would want to see a driver's license. And then one of my favorites, like maybe your husband could come in and corroborate you, right? And I mean, 
that is the system we have, right? And those are the jurors we have in all of these cases. And it was astonishing the amount of evidence that that really we think is available, whether it's DNA, um, surveillance cameras, um, you know, social media. We, Samin and I have an article in Law and Society Review about the use of text messages in social media um, because that too, oftentimes you would think, well, this is written down. This is text messages. It's not testimony. I can't lie. It's there. But what we show is that it doesn't matter if it's written. It is how it is read into the court process, how it's read into the transcript, who reads it, who animates it. Um, and we go through a couple cases comparing this real you know, visceral, fantastic animation of text messages and social media to create very different outcomes than you would think that is that's that the text messages would relay on their own, right? Um, so there's so many, you know, fabulous, you know, examples of how this really is um, a process, right? And and who we believe in, who we don't. And I think that that is historically deep, um, you know, who who we think are, are experts, right? Most of the witnesses that came to the courts, police officers, um, nurses, are fact witnesses. They're not expert witnesses, right? They're, they're just there to relay the facts of a, of a report that's already written. Um, so, you know, there the uh, again a resource issue is, you know, the the courts don't have the money to get fat, uh, expert witnesses into many of these cases either. Mina. I was just going to say something again. We've talked a lot about how under-resourced the criminal justice system is, and every time Heather and I do this, we we talk about this, right, in the sense that we really do think there's like a, 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 a misfit between what the public thinks is possible and what the courts actually can do, um, you know, both in terms of like, there are just technologies that don't exist. There's a lot of forensic science that is in fact junk science. It's, it's not replicable. So, um, and there've been a lot of scandals around, for example, the use of fingerprint analysis or the, um, hair identification techniques, right, are both like really questionable science right now. But I also want to underscore that that we're actually not advocating that these should be more resourced because we ultimately uh, wrote the book and come to this work as abolitionists. Um, and so, you know, when you hear us say it's under-resourced, that's like a descriptive terminology that we, we say, you know, th this is a resource-poor environment. Um, in which you know the state is only able to uh, to provide a certain amount of of uh, support expertise, but we also don't see answers uh, in expertise, and most importantly, we we don't see that people are being healed or made whole um, by this system. Um, and being an abolitionist, right, is is a very difficult position to come to when we talk about what does that mean in the context of sexual violence, but clearly there are many people doing that work um, who have been doing that work. Um, and, you know, we would sort of draw them in at the end of the book um, in part because 
we don't see an easy fix. Uh, ultimately, whether you resource the courts and resource policing, um, which we really um, disagree with or not, you will not undo what it is that the court does in the sense of its sort of hyper surveillance um, of black communities, its um, active harm of sexual assault survivors who are really you know, put through the grinder in order to produce an outcome um, of a conviction if that's um, you know, where things head, it, it doesn't undo that in, in some ways it would intensify it, right? If we, if we resource the courts and the police more, then we're gonna see an intensification of those racist, sexist, there are also, you know, very homophobic um, and ableist narratives. Um, and so, you know, I just want to be really clear because Heather and I are often very clear uh, that, that we mean under-resourced in a descriptive sense and not in the sense of, of advocacy. And, and that was one of the, the points that you sort of make inside the book as well, is that the resources um, are there's a lot of resource in terms of this science. Um, and there's also a lot of resource that is put into policing, but also one of the places where there are perhaps less resources are in the capacity of the um, public defenders um, who have really ex extensive burdens of cases in the Milwaukee system um, is one of the points that you had made in terms of like the ABA standards and so forth. Um, but I did want to ask you a little bit about your conclusion with regard to being abolitionists. Um, what, what can we abolish? Well, I think that the central theme is, and, you know, I had a political theorist on my, um, dissertation committee uh, many years ago, Jennifer Culbert, who always challenged me to think about what is justice, right? And that's a wonderful question for an anthropologist because, you know, justice has an ethnographic ground um, and it, you know, is both uh, something that is felt and experienced in a individual sense, but also uh, in a communal sense. Um, and I mean, I'm sure Heather will have a lot more to say about um, restorative justice and other models of justice uh, that that we do see um, communities kind of coalescing around. But ultimately, I think that we can invest less in scientific uh, evidence because all it really does is reinforce our distrust of testimony. Um, and we can also... I think inform people more fully uh, what it means to consent to participate um, or to be conscripted to participate. You don't necessarily get to consent if you're a crime victim. It's not your case. It's the state's case, right? But if we allow people to, to have a greater sense of what it is that they're participating in and what the outcomes might be, a lot of people are genuinely shocked by how bad they feel um, when these processes end, even when they end with, you know, quote unquote, the correct outcome of a conviction. Um, I also think that we do have to think about how we are not supporting families and communities. Um, and because so many of these cases really involve families and communities, conviction and imprisonment of a sexual assault um, of someone who's being found 
you know, responsible for sexual assault oftentimes mean divesting their other energies from their communities and their families. So we've literally seen people beg the prosecutor and beg judges, right, not to imprison someone because the paycheck, right, that feeds their children together is critically important for their survival. And so I think to invest in supporting families' livelihoods, we we have to divest from um, the current system of incarceration, right, which does have these really deep, devastating collateral consequences that disproportionately hurt Black men and, and, and Black women and children, um, particularly here in Milwaukee. Um, so I think it's it's going to take a, a, a lot because oftentimes I do feel like there is a lot of inertia uh, within the current system. We're, we're really committed to it, um, committed to those foundations. But I think it's really important to, to like dream wildly about what it would mean to heal um, and what it would mean to hold someone responsible um, in a meaningful way within their community. Absolutely. Um, I think I'll add that we there are many ways in which um, we invest in violence, right? And the state is part of that. So again, yeah, talking about the resources available um, is not to increase those resources, but to divest from um, the violence that we see in adjudication, the violence that we see in mass incarceration, the violence that's created um, in by the state that affects all of us, all of our communities. And certainly we are deeply um, socialized into this punishment model from, from the moment that we're, you know, born. <laughs> um, and so that's a, that's a real hard, you know, that can be very difficult to, to get away from. I think that most importantly, to start to do that, we need to be survivor led. Um, that means we need to tell and listen and hear different stories. We need to let survivors of violence lead the way. And when we let survivors of violence lead the way and tell us what they want, instead of um, forcing them to do something they don't want or lying to them about what this process is actually going to look like and feel like, um, or trying to even smooth it over, right? When we listen to what survivors want, we, we never, we very, very rarely see that it is incarceration of their family members, their community members. Um, sometimes I'm not saying that, you know, some people can't find healing from that. I, I do think that some people do. Um, vastly, we see that that's just not what happens. Um, on the on the flip of that, too, we are incarcerating massive numbers of, in particular, men of color, um, but fathers, sons, brothers, um, and we're not holding anyone really accountable. We're not holding the state accountable. The, the, the people who create harm are not being held accountable because punishment and incarceration doesn't hold anyone accountable. You sit there, you maybe you take some classes, maybe you reflect, but none of that's guaranteed and none of that's you know um, forced upon. So accountability is extremely different than um, 
punishment and incarceration. And if we want to get real about um, abolition and um, you know what that looks like, we build and we imagine. And and when we do listen to survivors and people doing this work, transformative justice people and advocates. Um, and activists working on this for many, many decades are, you know, say over and over again, um, accountability is not anything that happens in the system, right? Accountability happens in your community. Accountability happens in your family. And we can start to heal perhaps and, and grow if we hold people accountable and ourselves accountable to the systems of violence in which we invest in all the time. Um, a lot of that um, is also thinking very, very clearly about the resources for victims of violence, too, because, you know, once you're done with the case, whether that whatever that outcome is, you know, oftentimes the, the system says, now we're done with you. Now we get to throw our hands, you know, like no more contact with you. So where are the resources for where is the, the healing that's happening after that? Um, we don't invest in any of that. The state has no, um, no incentive to do that, I guess. And, um, and it certainly doesn't do it for, for survivors who are left after those cases who, um, feel the injustice and and need assistance, whether that's financial assistance, therapy, counseling, assistance for their for for healing. None of that's there. So we need to we need to tell different stories. We need to correct a lot of the public perceptions on what's actually happening in these spaces. And in particular, need to listen to people who and survivors who have gone through that, right? Because they know better than anyone else. And it's time to, you know, start listening and taking what they say very seriously. And I, I found the book just um, so enlightening in terms of understanding all of these dimensions that are usually flattened by this sort of, um, you know, punishment, crime, dynamic and understanding and um, and and reading through all of the the really careful work that the two of you and your entire research team put into this really helps to sort of flesh out an understanding of like the 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 sort of psychological dependence on this forensic science that doesn't necessarily lead to justice um, and and an understanding of how race and gender are so ingrained in so many ways of thinking within the system as well. Um, so I wanted to thank you both, um, Heather Alavka and Samina Mula, for joining me today to talk about bodies and evidence, race, gender, and science in sexual assault adjudication, published by NYU in 2021, NYU Press in 2021. Would either of you like to give a shout out to a brick and mortar store with perhaps an online presence where people can purchase your book? We love uh, Lion's Tooth in Milwaukee and Cheris Books and More in Atlanta. And um, we also encourage people to check out things like Insight and Critical Resistance and Impact Justice, which are some of the restorative justice projects that you can find online that have been working on addressing sexual assault outside of the courts for years. Thanks, Lily. My pleasure. Thank you for joining me today. Thank you, Lily. Absolutely a delight to have both of you on. Thank you.